take your Bible, if you will, and open it to the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 33, 33rd Psalm, Psalm 33. And as you'll notice, you'll see that this particular Psalm has no superscription. There's really no way of knowing who wrote it. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, just attributes this psalm to David. Not only do we not know who wrote it, but we don't even know why it was written. One clue is given to us in verse 19 where there is mention of a famine, to keep them alive in famine. Perhaps the psalm is reflected on some national crisis that was going on, like a famine in the land, and wrote this particular psalm to call upon the righteous to praise the Lord. Nevertheless, independent of the circumstances that may be taking place, Psalms has been called Israel's hymn book, yet this particular psalm opens it up for all the inhabitants of the world to stand in awe of Yahweh. For all the inhabitants of the world to stand in awe. It is a praise psalm for everyone who knows the one true God and seeks to honor him in praise and thanksgiving. So allow me to read this beautiful psalm, Psalm 33. Sing for joy in Yahweh, O righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to Yahweh with a lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud shout. For the word of Yahweh is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of Yahweh. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He lays up the deeps and storehouses. Let all the earth fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was. He commanded, and it stood. Yahweh nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the thoughts of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever, the thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. Blessed is a nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Yahweh looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who forms the hearts of them all, he who understands all their works. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for salvation, nor does it provide escape to anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul is patient for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Yahweh, be upon us as we wait for you. Now, first things first, there is a link between Psalm 32 and 33. Psalm 32, which our pastor preached some time ago, describes the joy of the person who has confessed his sin and has been restored. That's Psalm 32. You could say that Psalm 33 begins where Psalm 32 ends, 
Notice how Psalm 32 ends, verse 11. Be glad in Yahweh and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Do you see that? And then Psalm 33 continues to describe that same joy, but specifically ponders over the excellency of God's character. God's character. You see, Psalm 33 puts 1 Peter 2.9 into practice, whereby Peter, there in 1 Peter 2.9, explains the reason we are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. It is so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous what? Light. You are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here in Psalm 33, though, we don't just speak it, exangelo is the word, we don't just announce it, we don't speak about it and just proclaim his excellencies, we sing about them. We sing about them. In other words, who we are dictates what we say, what we announce, what we proclaim. And here in the Psalms, the focus becomes not on who we are, but on who he is. And that dictates why we sing, why we sing. My beloved, we sing because of who he is. We sing because of who he is. We give thanks to Yahweh because of who he is. We sing to him a new song. And verses 4 and 5 extol the excellency of his greatness and of his grace. Look at verse 4 and 5. For the word of Yahweh is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice and the earth is full of the loving kindness of Yahweh. The earth is full of his loving kindness. The steadfast love, if you happen to have the ESV. Randy, where are you at? There you are. Okay, at least one person here. <laughs> Always got to pick on Randy. Or goodness, let's pick on somebody else. New King James Version. Who do we have here? And there we go. I know which ones you have. I know exactly which ones you have. <laughs> Loving kindness, steadfast love, or goodness. What I want you to observe is that this is one perfection, just one essential character of God that's repeated in this psalm. Loving kindness. It appears three times, actually. The earth, verse 5, is full of his loving kindness. Then in verse 18, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness. And it is the concluding prayer that his loving kindness, O Yahweh, be upon us as we wait for you. Verse 22. Loving kindness shall surround the one who trusts in Yahweh. Back in chapter 32, verse 10. Again, thinking on the character of God, thinking of what we know about God, specifically just speaking on one attribute, one essential character of God, his loving kindness. That's why we sing. We sing because of him. And even Lamentations 3, 22 to 23 declares, 
The loving kindness of Yahweh indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That is why we sing and why we bring forth praise each and every day. That is why we diligently work to know our great God and Savior, that our life would be filled with songs of praise, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him as we know our God each day, day after day, from one level of glory to another, being transformed because of being in his word. And so in this psalm, Psalm 33, we see the call to praise, verses 1 through 3, the motivation for praise, 4 through 11, and the response of praise, verses 12 through 19, and with a great finale of praise in verses 20 through 22. The beginning is really straightforward. It's a call. It's a call to praise, verses 1 through 3. Notice, there are four imperatives. Verse 1, sing for joy. Verse 2, give thanks to Yahweh, sing praises to him, or, or make melody to him in some translations. Verse 3, sing to him. These are commands for the people of God. This is the who, if you will. Who are they? Here they are, the righteous ones, those who seek to live according to his standard. Righteousness takes God's law into consideration. Moses says in Deuteronomy 6.25, it will be for righteousness for us if we're careful to do all, the, all this commandment before Yahweh our God, just as he commanded us. Not only are they referred to as righteous ones, but notice here they are the upright. They are those who follow Yahweh faithfully. They seek to do what is right in his eyes. The word upright has the idea of going straight or direct. The upright look straight ahead. There, there is no deviation with them. As Proverbs 4.25 says, let your eyelids be fixed straight in front of you. The upright do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. You see, they, they keep his commandments, which give evidence of their love for him, of their devotion for him. They keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 6.18, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh. In verse 1, we're given the what as well. The righteous and the upright are called to what? To sing for joy. Sing for joy. The Hebrew term means to give a ringing cry in joy, exaltation, especially in praise to Yahweh. Sometimes you see it being translated as shout for joy. Back in 32 verse 11, we read it already. Shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. I mean, just think for a moment. Think for a moment when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes back and he reigns from Jerusalem. The king is here. And Isaiah prophesies concerning this day in Isaiah 52. Turn over there to Isaiah for a moment. I want you to see this for yourself. Isaiah 52, beginning with verse 7. Isaiah 52, beginning verse 7. This will sound familiar to you because we've read it in the New Testament. Verse 7, 
How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who proclaims good news, who announces peace and proclaims good news of good things, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voices, they shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when Yahweh returns to Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together. There's that word again. You waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. This is the privilege of the watchmen, you see. They get to lift up their voices. They get to shout joyfully together. The king is here. He is reigning from Jerusalem. But my beloved, this is what we get to do. Each and every Lord's day, we get to shout joyfully together as the people of God. We get to proclaim that he reigns, that he reigns, and that we're looking for his return. Amen? Amen. Amen. Notice the latter part of verse 1. Praise is becoming to the upright. It's becoming. It is suitable. It's, it is proper. And Psalm 147, verse 1 adds, it is pleasant and praise is becoming. It, you see, it's just what the people of God do. What do you expect people to do who belong to God, who are, are part of God's house? They sing. They sing. They shout joyfully together. Not only is it our supreme duty, my beloved, for we are called to sing, but it is our highest priority. We get to worship our great God. The who? They are the people of God. The what? They are the shouts of joys, joy, praise to God. How? Well, you sing with instruments. Look at verse 2. Give thanks to Yahweh with a lyre. Sing praises to him with a harp of ten strings. Many of the psalms specify the use of instruments in the singing of the psalm. Here, sing praises has the basic idea of making music or singing a melody to Yahweh. Now, there were two different types of lyre. Uh, Kinnor, which appears 13 times in Psalms, and Nebel, which appears eight times, a harp. The lyre was more portable, while the harp was larger, having ten strings. These were well-known instruments in Mesopotamia and Egypt. In fact, in some of the reading that I did, they trace it back even to the Ur of Chaldees. You know who was from Ur? Abram. That's right. Abraham later on. But Abram, who knows? Abraham might have brought those strings with him and just carried it along the road to where we have it now. These were well-known instruments in Mesopotamia and Egypt, but it was the music of Zion that became well-known in Mesopotamia. In fact, in Psalm 137, verse 3, we read how the Babylonian captors taunted the Jews, asking, sing for us one of the songs of Zion. Sing for us one of the songs of Zion. Now, whatever the shape and sound of these instruments, what is clear is that the people of God are called to sing praise to their God. Look down in verse 3. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud Shout. Notice that. Sing to him a new song. This doesn't necessarily imply that you sing a song that has never been sung before. 
is being gripped anew by the majesty and the greatness of our God when you do singing. In fact, listen to Spurgeon on this for a moment. Quote, Our faculties should be exercised when we are magnifying the Lord so as to not to run in an old groove without thought. We ought to make every hymn of praise a new song. To keep up the freshness of worship is a great thing, and in private it is indispensable. Let us not present old, worn-out praise, but put life and soul and heart into every song, since we have new mercies every day and, and see new beauties in the work and word of our Lord." End quote. Put life and soul and heart into every song. This is what we get to do. The Old Testament is filled with references to a new song and flows from a heart that has experienced God's redemptions, God's deliverance. For example, in Psalm 96, verse 1, sing to Yahweh a new song. Sing to Yahweh all the earth. Psalm 98, verse 1, sing to Yahweh a new song, for he has done wondrous deeds. His right hand and his holy arm have worked out his salvation. We sing to him because of what he has done and who he is. Even if you were to fast forward to the book of Revelations, you will find all the angelic hosts, along with the saints, singing a new song of God's final and glorious deliverance. And the Apostle John writes of this in Revelation 5, 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. New praise, new reasons for praise must find its way to the singing lips and the playing fingers of God's people. We're not singing about a God who did something in the past alone, but a God who is working out his marvelous works in the present and we could even praise God for the work he has yet to do in the future. You can praise him for the past, for the present, and you can praise him for the future. And so with each new week, do we have new reasons to praise God? As your week goes by and you consider what God has done, what God has carried you through, as you think of who he is, of his faithfulness, of his kindness, his loving kindness towards you, do you have new reasons to praise God? What new reasons do you have to praise God this week? Well, just to jumpstart that discussion, the psalmist provides reasons for praise. Reasons for praise, the motivation for praise, really, in verses 4 through 11. You praise the Lord. You praise Yahweh. You praise God because, first of all, of his righteous character. Verses 4 and 5. For the word of Yahweh is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of Yahweh. For the word of the Lord is upright. Upright means straight, level, right. What God says is upright. What you have to realize is the correlation between of who he is. He is faithful. He is true. He is trustworthy. And what he says, the word of the Lord. 
the correlation between who he is, what he says, and what God does. All his works. And all that God commands is right. And whatever he brings to pass is faithful and true. Why? Because God is upright in all that he does. You can trust him for it. Oh, that we would be a people who would declare this not only with our mouths, but in our hearts as well. That we would preach this to ourselves when no one's around and remind us of his faithfulness, of his loving kindness, that he does what is right always. What if you go through a hard providence? Well, may your heart declare As our modern hymn says, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy what? Faithfulness. He is the one true God who cannot lie. He is the God of truth, and as such, his words are true and faithful. And because this is so, he is is a rock of refuge. You see, God keeps his covenants. He keeps his commandments. How different this is with us. We say one thing and do another. We're inconsistent at best and hypocritical and dishonest at our worst. Praise be to God that he is faithful and true and upright. Just as a side note, that's why we place our faith and trust in God. You know, people will let you down. It's sad when they do. God will never let you down. God will never let you down. So make sure that you have your eyes set on him, not even on the closest of friends and family, but on him, on him. Because he is upright and true, he loves righteousness and justice, verse 5 tells us. Righteousness refers to a norm or a standard, and God is that standard. You measure all moral right by God. Justice refers to how righteousness is governed, how it's executed. He loves righteousness and justice because it is a reflection of who he is. And that being the case, my beloved, how ought his people love what he loves and hate? what he hates. God demonstrates his unfailing love to all mankind. The earth is full of his loving kindness. Just watch his dealings with creatures and creation. Just watch how he brings forth rain upon this earth, causes the sun to rise. He provides everything you need, life, breath, and all things, Acts 17. Everything. And when you start complaining about the sun, he brings you June gloom. And when you start complaining about June gloom, what does he give you? Sunny days. So no more complaining about the weather, whatever it is, whether it's May or June. We'll get there, and we'll skip over fall. Okay, that's okay. We live in SoCal. We pay dearly for this weather. So stop complaining. I'm preaching to myself, by the way. (laughs) You guys just happen to be here, but I'm preaching myself. Stop complaining about the weather. You guys are laughing because you know you guys have been doing that too. (laughs) You praise God because of his righteous character, but also his creative power. 
verses six through nine, by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. The psalmist turns back the clock of history, of human history. By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. The focus is on God's spoken word to call things into existence. Let there be light, and there was light, Genesis 1-3. And all we can do is stand in awe and wonder at the greatness of our God. And then in verse 7, he gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the heaps, deeps in storehouses. God gathers and controls the mighty oceans like water in a jar. Moses sang this in Exodus 15, 8. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. This was sung after the sea was divided and people crossed it. I mean, you would be singing too if you had witnessed that. Exodus 14.31 tells us that when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Granted, we get to read the rest of the story. They didn't stay in that state all the time, right? Soon after, complaining about the weather. No, complaining about food. No, but they saw the great power. God's mighty arm and all that he had done. What then is our response to his creative power as well? Look down in verse 8. Let all the earth do what? Fear Yahweh. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Our response, this, we fear the Lord. We, we maintain that appropriate relationship and attitude towards God. Holy reverence. Reverential fear. And in response, we stand in awe. We stand in awe of God and who he is and what he does. I get it. We live time and time again learning that lesson again and again and again. As if we didn't live it before, and yet we have to be reminded of it again and again and again. He is to be feared we need to stand in awe of him. Not only that, but his enduring counsel, verses 10 and 11. Yahweh nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the thoughts of the peoples. The counsel of Yahweh stands forever, the thoughts of his heart from generation to generation. You see, God orders all things according to his secret counsel. And there's two words here that are worth noting. One is Counsel, which can be translated as plan. The second word there is purpose, which could be translated as it is here in the LSB thoughts or intentions. Counsel and purpose. Counsel and purpose. Genesis 50.20 tells us of the brothers intended evil against Joseph, but not so with God, right? God does as he wills according to the counsel of his will. Notice what God does to the nations and peoples. He nullifies and frustrates them. Perhaps Ephesians 1.11 is a key verse to talk about this. In him, Paul writes, we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, catch this, 
who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things. He works all things. His decree is comprehensive. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Proverbs reminds us in Proverbs 21, verse 30, there is no wisdom, there is no discernment, and there is no counsel against Yahweh. Yahweh's counsel always stands. Always stands. Calvin even reminded us, the events which daily come to pass are undoubted proofs of the providence of God, end quote. All that happens as a proof, God's in charge. God is in control. Always. Our plans frequently go wrong, do they not? But God's plans do not. Proverbs 19, 21, many thoughts are in a man's heart, but it is the counsel of Yahweh that will stand. His plans cannot be shaken. His plans cannot be interrupted. For example, just look at your car. It may be the newest model, but it's a good reminder. God's counsel endures, but my car doesn't. So anytime you're in a car, you realize God's in charge. God's in charge. It's a depressing thought. I know, I know. It's a depressing thought to think of cars going downhill, and you can never trust them. But please, don't put your confidence in cars. Place your confidence. God has it all under control. Even when you break down and you miss that appointment, God is in charge. He knows it all. Our response then is to hope in God. Not in anything found here on earth, not in anyone, but in God. And that's exactly where the psalmist leads us, to fix our eyes on him. And that's where the response of praise comes in verses 12 through 19. And here we're exhorted to hope in God, and it begins in verse 12. The exhortation comes in the form of a proclamation. What's the proclamation? Verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We as the people of God know whom we have believed in. We know his moral attributes, his power, his counsel. He has called us to himself. And that's why we praise him because of who he is. We know our great God. Blessed are those who know him and are aware of his divine scrutiny. Verses 13 through 15. Yahweh looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of man. From the place of his habitation, he gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who forms the hearts of them all. He who understands all their works. You see, God looks down from heaven and scrutinizes the hearts and actions of mankind. In other words, he alone evaluates man's hearts and his actions. Genesis 6, 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
Or on a positive note, God told David in Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Aren't you glad that God's eye is upon you? Day or night, day or night, His eye is on you. His watchful eye is on you. That's a comforting thought, my beloved. Comforting thought that God is with me. Always, he sees, he sees it all. He sees it all. Everything is laid bare to him. All is transparent. He even knows man's willingness or lack of willingness to trust him. He knows the state of your heart. Not only do we know his divine scrutiny, but his divine protection. Verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for salvation, nor does it provide escape to anyone by its great strength. The imagery here is that of war and battle. A king cannot hope to protect his kingdom by sheer numbers or military equipment. I mean, how many men did God use to defeat the Midianites? How many men? 300. Who did God use to defeat the nine-foot, nine-inch Goliath? David, there's hope for the little guy. I love that story. Saul even said to David, you are but a youth while he, Goliath, has been a warrior from his youth. 1 Samuel 17, 33. And what military equipment did David use? None. A stick, five smooth stones, and a shepherd's bag, and a sling. That's it. That's it. The truth is that we are still in need of divine protection because of the world we live in. Do we not? Just listen to the testimony of Scripture and of other psalmists who testified of God's sovereign protection over their lives and affairs. In Psalm 31, for example, Verse 14, but as for me, I trust in you, O Yahweh. I say you are my God. Verse 15, this is where God's sovereignty and human responsibility coincide together in one verse. My times are in your hand. God's sovereignty. God is in control. At the same time, here's my prayer. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who pursue me. God, you're in charge, but this is my prayer. I'm not sure how you're going to use my prayer in line with what you're going to do, but this is me. This is me being brutally honest with you. It's all in your hands. And when you trust in Yahweh wholly and completely, there is no room for anxious thoughts. When you are engulfed with the character and nature of God, those anxious thoughts flee. They're not even there because your concentration is thinking on things above, not on earthly things. My beloved, hope in God, not only in, not in your relationships with other people, your possessions, or the power or position that you have, hope in God. He is faithful and will always provide protection and deliverance, even in the most dire of circumstances. As Paul wrote, hope does not disappoint. 
If it is placed in God, it does not disappoint. You will never be ashamed that you put your hope in God. And then his divine deliverance, verses 18 and 19, going back to 33. Behold, the eye of Yahweh is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Deliverance belongs to the Lord and salvation comes to those who wait on him. His eyes on those who depend wholly on him. His eyes on those who hope, who wait for his loving kindness. Hopeful waiting, faithful endurance rather than the panicked action or the frantic activity is the appropriate stance of God's people. Endure faithfully, hope in the Lord. That's what we do. That's our stance. Such waiting is a sign of surrender to God's divine power rather than in human strength and power. When you wait, love is patient, is it not? Patient and wait on the Lord. David displayed this hopeful waiting when he fled from Jerusalem. Turn over to 2 Samuel 15. I know our pastor took us to 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So this is after that, okay? This is after that. 2 Samuel. I want you to see this. 2 Samuel 15. David displays this hopeful waiting when he fled from Jerusalem before the arrival of his son Absalom. This is part of the consequences that happens, that happened with David. And as he fled, the priests joined David, bringing with them the Ark of the Covenants. So David doesn't want to combat his son, Absalom. The priests, what do they do? Well, they join David, the king, but they bring something along with them. What is that? The Ark of the Covenants. David sees that, and he sends them back. Look at verse 25. 2 Samuel 15, verse 25. 25. Then the king said to Zadok, return the ark of God to the city. Notice this. If I find favor in the sight of Yahweh, then he will cause me to return and show me both it and his habitation. Verse 26. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good in his sight. Did you catch that? Zadok and the Levites apparently had carried the Ark of the Covenant in exile in order to support David's claim to the throne. He is the rightful king. David's possession of the Ark would demonstrate that he alone possessed the divine favor necessary to rule Israel. David, however, rejected this line of reasoning. The Ark would not be used as a talisman. It would not be used as a means of coercing the Lord to favor David. Saul had already tried this with the Philistines in 1 Samuel 14, 18. This is the way that David thought. If the king found favor in the Lord's eyes, then the Lord would bring him back and let him see it and his dwelling place again. If the Lord were not pleased with David for whatever reason, I think he got the lesson by this time. 
then let him do to me whatever seems good to him. Who's in charge? God is. This response lays bare David's heart for God and models a degree of submission to God's sovereign will. It's all up to God, whether he brings me back or I never see this place again. Whether I'm restored as king or if I never have that privilege ever again. Who's in charge? God is. So David put his hope in the Lord. He waited on the Lord. My beloved, we may not know when the day of trouble, when a day of affliction and the tribulation may come, but it's coming. One thing we do, we must trust in the name of the Lord our God and in no other. We trust in Him. We rely upon Him. We can do no other. Yet no matter the circumstances that you're facing, God is still the same, and for this we praise Him. Every trial provides for this strengthening resolve and confidence that we know whom we have believed and we are convinced that he is able to guard what we have entrusted to him until that day. We trust him with our lives knowing that nothing comes to us without it first being providentially and sovereignly orchestrated in the mind of God. He establishes good in the midst of suffering. Whatever men meant it for, God always means it for good. He is good and benevolent. He is righteous and does what is right. We trust him in our afflictions, knowing that they produce blessings, the blessings of endurance, the blessings of a proven character, the blessings of hope. And this hope, my beloved, does not disappoint when it's anchored in God. And so rather than causing us shame, fear, and uncertainty, our hope in God causes us to glory, to exalt in tribulations. It moves us to praise God, to sing for joy in the Lord, and to give thanks to the Lord and to sing to him a new song. Oh, people of God, what is the song of your heart this morning? If that is the cry of your heart this morning, to sing to him a new song, to be renewed in vigor, to love him, to be dedicated to him, to praise him for who he is and what he has done, I want to invite you to stand in the reading of God's word. Let's stand. This is different, I know. Let us all affirm together and be renewed with an end of a great finale of praise in the remaining verses, verses 20 through 22. You have it up here. Our soul is patient for Yahweh. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Yahweh, be upon us as we wait for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it motivates us and causes us to truly praise you for who you are. 
for your benevolence, your loving kindness. Loving kindness that's better than life. Thank you that we have experienced even today and be reminded of your faithfulness and how great you are and how sovereign you are. Help us to entrust ourselves to you and to trust all things to you. You are in control and all things will come to pass as you deem it so. Help us to wait on you. In Christ's name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.